0: This episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Yule Nation. We pay our respects to elders, past, present and emerging. We honour their histories, cultures and traditions of storytelling. Hello and welcome to Plated Three Food Memories. I'm your host, Summer Subbas. For a quarter of a century my catering company, Plated, has contributed food experiences for some of Australia's most extravagant and intimate soirees. Food connects us. It connects us to people, to places and to moments in time. These memories shape who we are and what we value. So come and break bread with my guests and I as they share their food memories, revealing far more about themselves than what they've tasted. Deborah Francis White is the host of podcast The Guilty Feminist. A podcast that celebrates comedy, conversation you can't miss, and frontline activism. With over 90 million downloads, The Guilty Feminist is a podcast actor Emma Thompson believes is essential for the planet.
1: Well, Tim Minchin does Eyeliner. You could do Eyeliner, that's you could do Eyeliner. Yeah, but Tim Minchin does it because he's a cool man. Yeah. Whereas I would just look like a lady. That's the androgyny thing, isn't it? Mm, I see what you mean. he's androgynous and it's cool. If he doesn't, it's eyeliner, like, If you do it, it's eyeliner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How does that work? Mm, it's like a man bun. It's <laughs> just a bun, if I have one. Oh, my God, that's true. Yeah. If you want to be a hipster with guy liner and a bun, you actually look like you work in HR. It's a, yeah. <laughs> oh, <God> damn it. <laughs> that's actually true. That's, that's a nightmare. Disappointing.
0: Mm. You are... Women are limited again. Born in Australia, Deborah grew up in Brisbane and went on to study English at Oxford University. While her box might read feminist, Deborah's content is for everyone. Her talks on diversity, belonging, creativity and confidence make her one of the most sought-after speakers in and outside the United Kingdom. In my eyes, Deborah is a big deal. In my heart, she feels like home. You see, I, Sava, Sava, stand on the shoulders of every single woman who has come before and now surrounds me. Deborah Francis White, you are all these women to me, and what a privilege it is to welcome you to our podcast.
1: Sava, are you the loveliest man in the world? Probably. No, I I suspect so. I suspect so. Do you know what? That was such a lovely description. I thought I was dead. I thought I'm listening to my obituary. (laughs) This is wonderful yeah, yeah but... you will be, you're in charge of my obituary now we've only just met, but I feel very strongly I want you writing certainly the Australian <laughs> one. Do you reckon I'd get an obituary of the age I might i mean i don't know I don't know how famous you have to be for that, but I'd be pushing for it, and I would hope that you'd be you'd be wedging my obituary into the age. I will absolutely do that for you, but please just don't
0: die perhaps die later, not right now Deborah, I'm a feminist but can you run a quick quiz over me to see that indeed I am a feminist and not just pissing in your pocket?
1: Piss? Did you say pissing in your pocket? Yeah, it's have like never heard 40, that expression. It's an Australian expression. Literally, never heard that. And I was <laughs> raised in Australia, so this is a this. I think it's a new expression, uh, or maybe one from uh, maybe a regional expression. You're Sydney, aren't you, Salva? I am definitely Sydney. Yeah, okay, I'm going to call that a Sydney expression, like cosy for swimsuit. Um, <laughs> we say togs in Queensland. That's right, listeners, I was raised in Queensland. Extraordinary. So now I need to give you a little quiz to see if you're really a feminist. Okay, this is my question. Salva, you're sitting around with some other men and you're all having uh, a chat, some jokes, some laughs, and one of the guys makes a joke. It's not overtly misogynistic but there's something about it that makes you think that this table's laugh implies that women are the other they're not really one of us they're more something to be objectified looked at, had sex with, maybe abandoned they're just a different sort, slightly different sort of species. What do you say Sava? What do you say in that situation? How is that funny?
0: I will- <laughs> How, how is that funny? That would be that would be my immediate response, and I would sort of probably grimace and, and just kind of go P-, like i like an eaten a lemon or something. It'd be a
1: sour look <laughs> on my face. I love that your uh, yeah your immediate response is not to be worried about the social contract. There, you're just like, how is that funny? I think that's quite good. When I think, as you make them explain it. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you this: What state? What state was the first state to give women the vote in Australia? I've got a, I've got a
0: feeling it's South
1: Australia. Yes, Subba, yes come I, on, so come I'm on, a feminist feminist quiz with flying <laughs> colours. Um, it was uh, it was South Australia in 1894, and then Western Australia in 1899, and then in 1902 it was uh, it was federal. Um, however, however, what we must not forget, and this is where intersectional feminism is so important indigenous women could not vote until um, when sava it's so shocking 1962 however it wasn't till the 1967 referendum that aboriginal and torres strait islander people were included in the census holy hell about time isn't right that shocking and this is why this is why feminism isn't feminism if it's not intersectional because it's not about gender, is it, then? It's about gender plus or gender minus. And so we always have to be very, very aware of that. Why is your brand of feminism guilty? I'm so glad you've asked, Summer. Um, <laughs> so I started the podcast end of 2015, December 2015, and uh, it, things were changing. Um, it was just a time. Like, I I remember the conversations shifting With my female friends from our own personal love lives, our own personal careers, what we were wearing, where we were going, what we were doing, why we should have got this comedy job and they shouldn't have got it or, you know, and that just shifted. It was like it was just a seismic shift into justice, how furious we were about about what we were what we were witnessing, how we felt about the political state of the world. And it was a bunch of stuff going on in the zeitgeist, I think. Um, Hillary Clinton was just about to be in the White House, which was exciting times, first woman in the White House. Um, And that was a sure thing, Salva, because the alternative was just implausible. And then we got the famous pussy-grabbing tape. It was just implausible. It was implausible, implausible that he would get in. So my feminism became activated and I desperately wanted to be part of this. I'd always wanted to be a feminist. Um, when I was young, I was a Jehovah's Witness, and it, it's a very patriarchal religion. It's all run; everything's run by men. But I was always like very furious, even about what was in the Bible. I mean, I'm an atheist now, but when I, you know, when I was younger, I was very religious, and what was in the Bible really irritated, like upset me about how women were treated. And I would have all these theories about why that was and how that was going to change. You know. Anyway, when feminism had a revival, like an, a socially, a, a social revival, I was desperate to be part of it. But I thought, "Sava, well, I'm a feminist, but I do things that I, these feminists I see in the media who are so strident and sure and fabulous. I was like, I don't think they're doing the things I'm doing. So I thought, I, I, I feel like in order to participate in this, I need to talk about the things that I'm doing that aren't very feminist and see if other people relate to that, risking that I might get kicked out of the feminist club. Um, But my friend, Bridget Christie, who was one of those brilliant, strident and incredible comedian and feminist, she said to me, you'll never find your audience till you say the thing you're scared to say. So I said, I'm a feminist, but. And one of the first things I confessed is I'm a feminist, but one time I went on a women's rights march, popped into a department store to use the loo, I was in there, distracted, (laughs) trying out face cream. And when I came out, the march was gone. And I just had to put my sign in a bin, put my sunglasses on and walk away because I was like, oh my God, I'm the worst feminist in the world. And when I said that, I thought, oh my God, they're just going to be like, what? But I had a very small audience. It was like 30 people, 20 of whom I knew by name. And uh, they all roared with laughter. And that tells me, they relate either they've done that or something like it, and then so many women. When the podcast took off, which was very fast, so many women have said to me, "Oh my god, I've done that." And Sandy Toxvig came on our show. You know Sandy Toxvig, her host QI. Yes, yes, she came on our show and she said, "I have to admit, I'm a feminist." But the very first big women's march, you know, the one post Trump, um, that there was all over the world, the one, the London one. She said, "I spoke at that. I opened it, and then I went off to." I think it was somewhere like Claridge's for tea. She said, because I just, she said, <laughs> I'm short. I find it really difficult to, in a really big crowd. I just, I just thought, well, I've sort of done my bit by speaking. She said, I've never confessed that to anyone, but I just couldn't handle the crowd. And I just thought, I'll just I'll just, we'll just go. And she said it was only, it was like a really posh hotel that was nearby. And she said that was the only place we could find. So I end up in this posh hotel having tea and scones thinking, oh, my God, they're all out there marching for hours. And I'm like, I'm, I'm the worst, you know. And so, like, what I felt was what was holding me back at times was guilt. So I'm thinking, can I speak up in this meeting and go, there are no people of color in this film. This is a, this is a Vox Pops. And like, what? Why is this all white people? And does no one else has thought of that at this point. You know, this is, you know, 2016 or whatever. And I can see that. But am I entitled to speak up and say that? If last night, instead of watching the three-hour documentary about um, Maya Angelou, what I in fact did was watch a, a, a bingy marathon of Say Yes to the Dress. Like, who am I? <laughs> who am I to be speaking up, judging others? So this was a way of exfoliating guilt, rather than keeping it in the body, because I believe when guilt is kept in the body, it turns into shame. And shame is luggage. It's something to be carried. It weighs you down and makes you less agile and less able. So let's exfoliate it, put it on the table. Laugh at it. If it doesn't matter, laugh at it. If it does matter, if it's holding you back, let's look at it. Let's put it on the table. Let's exercise, build muscle. Let's change.
0: Chilean writer Isabel Allende who reminds me somewhat of you in the way that your writing offers safe passage and encouragement? She said, "Until men and women have equal power, we have a lot of work to do." From your perspective, what does this
1: work look like? Right now, people who are not of the dominant group, so say for example in the workplace, often um, you know, banking, law, any ancient profession. Um, But most businesses were started for and by men. So even if now you've got 50-50, you know, in a big consultancy or something, 50-50 gender split in the rank and file, you will find that the top jobs where the power base is are still nearly all men. If if it is a very male-dominated space across the board like tech, they're saying, oh, we need more women in this space. Diversity and inclusion. Diversity, people who are not men in this case. Um, obviously, diversity is lots of different things, but let's just use this as an example. People who are not men in tech. Women and non-binary people in tech. That's what we want. That's what we're looking for. The inclusion part usually stops with recruitment. It's like, great, we've got some women ones in here now. We're done. We've included them. The problem with this, server is can you imagine going to your partner's school reunion can you imagine you turn up with them they your name's on the list you are definitely included do you belong at your partner's school reunion no obviously not a school reunion is all about shared experiences and memories and you weren't there so the only people who belong at the school reunion are people who went to the school but I'm going to go further than that I'm going to say everyone who was included in the school didn't belong in the school. There's loads of people who were enrolled at that school who don't turn up to the reunion, couldn't think anything worse because they didn't fit in, they were bullied, they were only there for one term, they were a French exchange student. They didn't belong at that school. They never felt like they belonged. They're not going to turn up to the reunion, but so hellish. So the belonging, the ones that belonged at the school now turn up to the reunion to share the memories. And that's a great time for them. They're all like, remember the time you got really drunk and fell out of the geography's block window and it was only on the ground floor and you thought it was on the third floor? Lol. You only invite your partner, honestly, the only reason they're there is so that you can go, oh, someone agreed to come to this with me, winning at life. You know, like that's, you only invite your partner so you can show them off. That's the only reason. So most companies and most sectors of society have an inclusion policy, but they don't have a belonging policy. What that means is the architecture of the space is for people who went to that school, the dominant group. Everyone else gets included. Here's a glass of wine. But there's no effort to make them feel like they belong. Until we ask people... How would you change this space? How would What would it be like if we started over and we re, we created this space with you in mind? And if you ask them that, they may not know the answer to that question. They may just go, oh, I don't know. All law firms look like this. I've never thought about it. I don't know. I don't, how would I start a law firm that looked like one in which women, indigenous women, trans men, indigenous men, people in wheelchairs, You know, how would it look? How would it look? How would it feel? What would it be? There's a lot of work to be done to ask people to be the architects of a space when they've never seen anything modelled except this. That takes time, it takes space, it takes imagination, and it takes permission. We don't give people permission. We say, Feedback on the form, please. Anything you'd like changed? No? Great. But you don't give people permission. Permission is asking again and again and again, making changes they suggest and demonstrating, proving to them we mean it, proving we mean it. Because they live in a society where they've spoken up before when they've been asked and they've been shut down or they've been excluded because of the thing they said. When you asked them, permission is everything. And permission, oh, it's tough. To get people to really believe you and they've lived in a white supremacist, male-dominated space their whole life, a straight space their whole life where gay people are included or given a day of the year to have a party in the street. We'll block off the traffic today. Get You get to be you. Lovely. That was your day. Now back to Straitsville. Do you know where you can go? That club, that club, that club, and that club. All other clubs, it's going to be a bit awkward for you. Oh, but when we want to have a, a hen night... We'll come into your space and find it hilarious wow. and delightful. Wow. We feel safe in your space, but you don't feel safe in ours. And that's that's about architecture. We need to start asking very different questions. We need to say not, how could we include you in the space that's designed for us so you feel a little bit less uncomfortable and you can be more productive for us so that our system gets all the juicy productivity and we get to look amazingly inclusive. Look at our banner at Pride. Oh, look at our policy for inclusion. We need to start saying, what would this space look like if it wasn't built for only one sort of human being? It's going to take people for whom this is perfect saying, I know this space is going to be less perfect for me if I make it more perfect for you, And I'm good with it. Absolutely.
0: Okay, the kitchen is open. Time for your three food memories, please, Deborah. Let's do it. For your first one, I asked for a memory about your dear husband, the producer of The Guilty Feminist, Tom Selinsky.
1: Uh, Tom Selinsky, I met him, we were doing improv classes in London. I was a nanny. I was living in Holland Park. So I had the house to myself on the weekends because the family would go to the country on the weekends. Holland Park is a very fancy suburb of London um, with some very beautiful houses. So I would have one of these, Notting Hill, it's near Notting Hill, it's West London. And I was nannying for a really nice family. and But the kids would go away with their parents for the weekend. And so the parents would spend quality time running around with them in the country and so I was this very lucky, very young Australian woman who, Australian nanny, Mary Poppins. You know, you know, Mary Poppins was written by an Australian woman. Yes. yes. I think that's why she flies in on, on an umbrella. Visa issues. Um, <laughs> and so I was Mary Poppins. I remember one of the little boys saying to me, Deborah, you're better than Mary Poppins. So I was, I was a good nanny. I, I, I did lots of fun things with the children. The Kids would go away on the weekend. And I met this man in pro class, this young man, and we hit it off. And I would, I had a nanny car, so I would. We lived in the same direction, so I'd drop him home. And one thing led to snogging, and I said, "Oh, come for dinner." Now I can't cook at all. I'd had to cook for the kids, but I would do like fish fingers and stuff. I was, I'm a terrible cook, which the children who are still adore me to this day, and we're still very close, will 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 happily say. Yeah, you're a great nanny, but the cooking was not great. So I want to, you know, I don't want this guy to think I can't cook. So there's a there's a very fancy deli in Holland Park. It's still there. It's called Lidgate, and they would have these brilliant pre prepared um, like stir fries and things like that, pies, and they would come in ceramics. So it would look like you'd cooked it. And they themselves had prepared it that day. So it wasn't like a ready meal. It was like they'd done the cooking and all you need to do is put it in a fry pan or a heated up. So he came over and I made him the most delicious, marinated, fabulous supper. And he was like, oh my God, this is wonderful. And I was like, yes. yeah." He was like, oh, I'm, I must get the recipe. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll give it to you later. I said, laughing and changing the subject very quickly. Next time he comes over, was like a, a pie with a crispy crust. It's all in ceramic, so it looks like you've made it. Take it out of the oven. Um, and uh, he was like, oh, you're a fabulous cook. It wasn't till he'd fallen in love with me. He's a fabulous cook, so he then would cook for me. He'd cook for me more than I'd cook for him. But whenever I cooked, I'd, it would always be a Lydgate special. It wasn't till he'd fallen in love with me that I revealed that... <laughs> He wasn't just going out with me. He was going out with Lydgate, the <laughs> Holland Park Deli. And when we moved from there, that was the end of me cooking.
0: We've You're been together out.
1: many years now. And I will be incredibly honest with you and say I my cooking faded. So far, I never cook anymore. I do make great reservations. <laughs> I make cocktails. I make introductions at dinner parties. All of those are phenomenal don't get me wrong i i bring i bring i bring the heft but not really in the terms of cooking if people come over for supper though i often make the pudding i make the dessert because otherwise people make fun of me they go oh tom makes me and i'm like you wouldn't say that if it was the woman cooking and the man didn't do anything if he just made the cocktails and introductions she wouldn't say a thing but they do so i tend to make the pudding just so that i don't look like a pudding <laughs> what are some of the dishes that tom cooks his signatures oh his signature um well, we're trying to be more plant-based now. So vegans, forgive me. Um, Hawaiian chicken. He makes a delicious Hawaiian chicken. He makes uh, like really fabulous. Like I love fish. He doesn't love fish, but he will. I know if he really is feeling like he's in love with me because he'll make me very beautiful grilled fish. Um, he makes um, things like mashed potato with celeriac inside. And uh, he, he thinks about brilliant combinations of things. Um, he he'll always he'll kind of dream something up on the way home and then go. I've thought of these two ingredients will go together, and his palate is much more sophisticated than mine. So he'll he'll give me something that he's just invented and go. What's the secret ingredient? And I'll be like, um, yummy things, <laughs> tomato. He'll be like, it's made of tomato. How's that the secret ingredient? I don't know. Like, I don't know. It's my I panic. I panic when he asks me for the secret ingredient.
0: The moments where you're sitting down with Tom at a table when you know the day is done all the work is behind you, do you is it a, a a space where you two can just connect and start having some conversations that's got nothing to do with work and nothing
1: to do with the the, the causes that you're championing? Um, I mean, lol to the idea that it's nothing to do with work, um, sure. Uh, but I do love it when sometimes we do that. But we often on a Friday or Saturday night when we get to sit, you know, often I'm on a, on tour or you know there's something going on or he's doing a podcast or whatever so those nights we often um take our supper upstairs we've got a little two-story flat in london we knocked through to make a second story so the upstairs there's a bar it's this sounds very glamorous it's a bar but there's in there's room for a sofa and a tv and that opens out onto a terrace and outdoor space is an absolute premium in london like it's so hard to get outdoor space so we had to knock through and make this space and we sit up there if it's a sunny night which is, you know, three nights a year in London, as your <laughs> listeners will know. Um, we sit outside and we have lovely, like, fairy lights out there, and it's all pretty and pot plants and things. And we can look out over the rooftopy London. But if it's not one of the three sunny nights a year when we happen to be home, we sit inside next to the bar, just on the sofa. We've got an ottoman with our, you know, food on and what we generally do is we we love to watch you know a film or something together but what always happens really especially lately is we put something on like a show we want to binge or a film and then immediately one of us goes oh I just need to tell you this and we pause it and then we have a long chat about that while we're eating and then it's like okay let's press play and then someone will go. Oh, that reminds me. <laughs> and so we watched an invent. Uh, we watched an episode of Inventing Anna over about three hours last night because we kept pausing it to kind of go. Oh, I. Oh, do you know? I just had a thought about this. Um, and so we often, yeah, we do connect because, you know, there's nights where you go right, we're really going to connect now. It's date night. Go to a restaurant. Sit opposite each other. Be romantic. Talk about things. It's too much pressure. Um, I love the nights where you're just, you know, you've gotten into your pajamas early. Tom's made something fantastic. We've started getting a lot of HelloFresh. They should sponsor this episode um, uh, because its they're really good. But just this last week or so, we've been getting some HelloFresh and there's no ingredients wasted. And you can't really have seconds and thirds and then feel a bit uncomfortable because there aren't any. It's just enough for you too. And so sometimes I go, is there any more? And he'll go, thankfully, no. Otherwise, we would just keep on eating it all night. But its it's so good because they bring you these fresh ingredients to the door and he made me this beautiful vegetarian mushroom risotto that was so delicious and we were just sitting there really just loving this risotto and how fresh how fresh it was um and how lovely it was and how much you know you know love had gone into making it um and it was just really a really lovely moment. We had a glass of red wine, which I really do. I tend to have vodka soda with a dash of cranberry if anyone's buying me a drink after the show because I find that very clean and I don't get any hangover from it. But if I'm eating, sometimes I like a lovely glass of red and then you just it's just mellow and then you just have a chat. So we're pretending to watch a TV show, but really we're not. That's, that's what I love. So you make desserts, puddings. What are some of your dishes? Okay, so... Um, I mean, these are really simple, so I apologise in advance for the simplicity. But sometimes the simple things are the best. If you take demerara sugar, brown sugar, and then you gently warm some butter in a pan and you pour the sugar over the top and you mix it all in, um, it makes a beautiful caramel sauce. Then if you put chopped bananas in that, you get these amazing caramel oh. bananas that are so delicious. And then you put soft white vanilla, Ideally, Hagen does, but fill in your favorite brand of vanilla ice cream here. And then you pour pour the caramel sauce over the ice cream and you deliver it to the table so that the caramel sauce is melting into the ice cream and and melting over these warm bananas. Mm -mm -mm. And see, that's something I can make and I can trust myself to make. And I'm not going to be faffing and I'm not going to be panicking and it's not going to be like, these brownies are burnt now. What have I done? Why did I begin this horrific, (laughs) horrific endeavor? So I tend to make very simple things like that. So Deborah, I'd like to move on to your second food memory. So my second food memory is: um, uh, I'm in America. I'm a nanny. I'm. Uh, it's this is before Lidgate's. Uh, this is before I've met Tom. Um, I am l- nannying in Connecticut, and every weekend and some evenings I go to New York City because I'm one hour on the train from Grand Central. So I live in this very beautiful, leafy, uh, beautiful like Connecticut. You know those big houses you see in Christmas films in America yes. that you think, well, they're just in movies. They're not. They're not. They're not just in movies, Sava. They're real. That they hang Christmas lights. They they go. Uh, they go trick or treating at Halloween. It's they have tailgate parties and you know it's 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 all real. You think it's just in. I don't know. For some reason, I was always like, that's a movie thing. No, no, it's a real thing. So I was living there and I was hanging out in New York a lot. I had friends in New York, had friends in Connecticut. And one of my Connecticut friends said to me, what I like to do is go to New Haven, which is where Yale is. And it was like an hour and a half drive from where we were in Connecticut, Um, maybe two hours. And I go there just to have a Sally's pizza. I was like, what? You drive like two hours for a pizza? She was like, yeah, I drive two hours for a pizza. She was like, it's a real treat, but I think about it all week. I I just get so excited about it. Drive there, or you can jump on the train if you want to have a couple of beers with it. And I was like, well, why is this pizza so good? She said, it just is, it's just the greatest thing in the world. I was like, it just seems like a long way to go for a pizza. And she was like, all they serve there is pizza and beer, nothing else. Like they serve rolling rock in bottles, there's no other options. And she was like, you don't want any toppings. I was like, you don't want any toppings. She was like, you don't want any toppings. I was like, well, I will want some toppings. You don't want any toppings. She said, it's just the dough, the tomato sauce and the cheese. That's what it is. She was like, you can have toppings, but you don't have any toppings. You shouldn't. I was like, all right. Well, I thought, well, it'd be nice to see Yale because Yale's like Oxford. It's lovely. So it's like, I'm always up for an adventure. But it did seem bizarre that she was like, we are just going for the pizza. We can have a wander around, but that's not why we're going there. So we get in the car, it's a lovely drive and everything, but I'm like, there's no way this pizza can be this good. There's no way this p-. She said, you know, some celebrities fly in Sally's Pizza to Europe. I was like, she was like, it's never going to be as good, though. It's going to be cold, you're going to have to heat it up. She was like, what you need is to be there. It's the. F-, she said it's the first, something like the first Italian brick oven or something, you know, one of those stories. The first Italian brick oven in, in um in an, in America or something. You know, one of those stories that I don't know if it's that, but
0: Are you an Australian girl at this point who's left Australia to go to the States?
1: No, I am Australian. I'm Australian. I've had a year in London, and now I'm ex- I I if I go to New York for a year, I'm extending my visa so I can come back and use the rest of my visa in London. Um however, they actually changed the law during this time so that I couldn't use the rest of my visa all. <laughs> so I had to do some gymnastics, but so I'm I'm there. Um, my friend Debrin says, "Come on, get in the car. We're going for pizza." We get there. There's a queue, and I start to realize this is a big deal. There are there are New Yorker cartoons about Sally's Pizza, like actual classic, old fashioned 1960s New Yorker cartoons about Sally's Pizza. I'm like, what? We queue. We finally get in. It's just booths, pizza, beer. She's right. I'm like, I might actually have a topping. She's like, you're not having a topping. This is what you're having. So we order a classic Sally's, like a margarita. Out it comes. It fills the table. I cut a piece off. It is like angels are crying on my tongue. It's beyond any experience I've had with food before. I don't want to talk to anyone while I'm having Sally's pizza. It is just an extraordinary religious experience. Do you make pil-
0: <laughs> Do you make pilgrimages back to uh, to New York, especially for it?
1: Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I've been many times. I, I've taken Tom. But I, I hype it up to people. I go, okay, we are going to get a train to New Haven just to have this pizza. They're like, you know, and I'll, I'll show you around Yale. There's an incredible dessert place called Cornucopia we'll go to. But we don't eat before we get a Sally's pizza. Like we eat very lightly because you want to have all the pizza. You want to have room and you want to enjoy it. You don't want to be like, you know, going, oh, no, I can't fit this in. So and everyone's always like, okay, Deb, you know, this is the greatest pizza. And then every single time I've taken anyone there, they're like, oh, you're not wrong. Okay, okay. So, yeah, that's going to be if I could have like a last meal on earth, it would be Sally's pizza. Sally's pizza and a rolling rock. Just
0: quickly before we move on to your third food memory, I want to know if food was an actor, what item of food, what particular bit of food would play you in a film?
1: Oh, uh, it would be an ice cream sundae with chocolate, hot chocolate fudge sauce. It would be a shapely glass that would sort of have my figure, you know, it would be kind of out at the bottom in and out, up again. Uh, and you'd see the chocolate sauce running through the vanilla ice cream. Any They're nuts? Really warm. Yeah. Um. I, as it's representing me, I'm going to say no nuts, thanks. I don't want to put that out into the universe. Um. <laughs> she's a bit nuts up top. No. No one. No. No. No one needs that. It's just going to be pure and classic. It's going to be vanilla ice cream in a in an hour shaped glass, and it's going to be the best chocolate fudge sauce you've ever had in your life. Um, and I think maybe there's going to be a saucy little cherry on top.
0: Ooh. Deborah, let's move on to your third food memory.
1: Um, Rybries, Sydney. It's the 90s. Cast your mind back. There is a restaurant, and it specialises in food that is uh, local, it's Australian, Uh, it's uh, of the earth. Uh, so they'll be using wattle in things. They'll be using eucalyptus in things. Um, they'll be using, again, sorry vegans, but Australian uh, animals. I guess many vegans don't listen to food podcasts because they can't handle it anyway. Uh, but uh, <laughs> they'll be they'll be um, uh, they'll be using, uh, you know, kangaroo that kind of thing. And I had there a dish called smoked emu that was with capers that was so delicious. And I'll never forget it. Some friends took me out, but it was a couple of young guys who uh, thought of themselves as very sophisticated that took us there. And I had one meal at Ribery's only, and I've never forgotten it. And it closed. I don't know when Ribery's closed in Sydney, but it's not there anymore. Deborah, to finish, tell us about your social cause. Choose love. They are a global organisation. It was started in a grassroots way when the Calais jungle in northern France was started, which was a patch of land refugees were allowed to have by the French government to build shelters, school, a school you know, places of worship, uh, shops, you know, and just to where they couldn't get visas. And they were just stopping there for a while. It was a place that refugees could rest, restore, build, have something of their own as they were stateless. And Choose Love was begun by some young women, uh, including Josie Norton, uh, who just saw um, some traumatic images, one of a little boy washed up on the beach who died drowning um, in from trying to make a crossing in a in a dinghy and. They just said, we've got to do something. So they raised, I think they, they raised, they tried to raise seven grand and they ended up, people wanted to give a lot more. They went over with tents to Calais and that was the beginning. I At that point, Josie worked for Coldplay as an assistant and um, she was, you know, kind of living kind of a rock and roll life. And she just said, I can't not do something about this. Choose Love Today raises millions every year. Uh, And then distributes that to their partners on the ground. So it could be somebody running like a little local project where they make warm meals to distribute to refugees who are in camps where there's no cooking facilities. Um, An organisation who does hot showers and um, sewage in uh, in refugees, refugee camps with astoundingly poor facilities. I've been and seen some of these with Josie. It's really shocking how people live And really extraordinary how individual humans will step in and create facilities where governments will fail. There was one that particularly touched me. It was a man who was running a laundry, and it was like a service wash. You know, if you don't have a washing machine in your building or you're very busy, and you can just drop or get your laundry collected by someone, and they'll when you know when they send it back and it's all folded beautifully and the socks are all paired. And he said to me, he said his wife, his ex-wife was Syrian, his children were half Syrian, and he just wanted to do something. And he said, my business in London kind of runs itself. I fly back over every couple of months and check it's okay, but you can do it all on Skype and stuff. He said, you know, it's fine. He said, I just wanted to do this. So he's running this little laundry, and he said, the thing for me is I want these people to get their laundry back the way that you would expect to get it back if you sent it off to some fancy service in London. I want it to have a ribbon on it with their name on it, the socks paired, you know with a it, it, I because that's a humanizing moment in a dehumanizing environment it's something personal it's something that makes them you know the washing smells good it's it's something that makes them feel seen individual human anything humanizing and so many people out there are, are running operations in, in a way that's so humanizing and how can we support this organization right go to choose.love you could buy legal services you could buy baby clothes you can buy whatever you want go and shop and that real thing will be delivered to that real person but it'll be done through partners on the ground who are running these closely and many times refugees work and operate these uh these services as well and uh, are involved and have a true sense of belonging in these grassroots organizations and not just a sense of inclusion so go to choose.love now, buy what you can or donate what you can. If you have a Choose Love, see if there's any anything operating in your area to see if you can volunteer, get involved. They have pop-up shops in various parts of the world. See if there's a pop-up shop near you where you can go and actually visit um, or get involved with refugees in your local community because the more you meet people, the more you realise people are just people and re- being a refugee is just a state. It's, just, it's not a thing that you are, it's just something that's happened to you. Um, it's a chapter of your life. It's I, it's uh, for most people not by any means indicative of their life before or their life after they're displaced. So uh, please, please, please uh, go to Choose Love, check out what is on offer and how you can help.
0: Deborah, thank you so much for sharing all these beautiful memories with us. But before we go in the vein of your podcast, do
1: you have anything to plug? Yes, I have, Savra. I'm so glad you've asked. I'm coming to Australia and New Zealand this year, finally. The tour's been put off because of covid Uh, But I really do believe it's going to happen this time. On the 13th of July, I'm in Adelaide. Adelaide.
0: you got to vote for
1: women. Yeah. Radelaide. Radelaide. Early in women's voting rights. Are you going to come out? That's the question. On the 13th, we're in Perth for the first time. We've never done the Guilty Feminist in Perth. On the 17th of July, we're in Canberra. On the 19th of July, we're in Brisbane. 20th in Melbourne. 22nd in Christchurch. 23rd in Auckland, 24th in Wellington and 27th in Sydney. So get tickets now. Um, you can get them if you go to guiltyfeminist.com. Um, you'll see and go on live shows. You'll see Guilty Feminist Down Under and then you can click through to any of those. Uh, you can go to Ticketmaster or you can go to B-O-H-M Presents.com. dot com and see what your options for tickets are because there's some sold through Ticketmaster, some through uh BOEM, et etc. et cetera. But to find the dates, go to guiltyfeminist.com or BonePresents.com. And I hope to see each and every one of you there. It's going to be the night of your life. You need to refuel your tank right now. There's a lot going on in the world. Feminists, come for joy, come for resilience, come for resistance. You will have the night of your life.
0: Well, I'm feeling very elated right now and very grateful for your time, Deborah. Thank you so much.
1: Sava, you've been wonderful. You made me feel like a million dollars. You made me feel good about myself.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Plated Three Food Memories. We'd love it if you'd tell your friends about us, write a review and share and spread the Plated Vibes. Make sure you tune in to next episode as I chat with Robin Matthews, Principal of Inner Sydney High School, Sydney's newest and shiniest education hub. Plated Three Food Memories is created in partnership with World Stories, produced and edited by Lauren McWherter, and original score by her husband, Russell Torrance. Bye for now, and ora Kali.